As we head into the Christmas season, I have the privilege of kicking off our Advent series. Growing up, I didn't know what Advent was. To me, primarily, it meant a calendar that you eat chocolate out of. But we get the word Advent from the Latin root Adventus, which means arrival. In the Christmas season rightly done, we are celebrating the arrival of Jesus coming to earth. And just as a grand king would be introduced by his accomplishments and titles, today and in the weeks to come, we hope to herald the arrival of the king. And the focus of this year's Advent will be on the prophecy given in Isaiah 9-6, which was written about 700 years before the time of Jesus, prophesying of a king that is coming that is unlike any other king. And we are given four royal names displaying his attributes. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's such a rich beauty in these names. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can treat them like a box of ornaments that we only bring out around Christmas time. But they are wonderful to dwell on year-round. And each week we're going to take one of these given names of the promised one to show that who he is is exactly what we need. The name given to Jesus that we'll be looking at closely today is that of Wonderful Counselor. What exactly does this title mean? We all know what wonderful means in our context. It can be splendid. It can be a response to good news. Oh, you got that job? That's wonderful. The love of friends and family, we, might, we would call wonderful things. Maybe you ate really good food this past week and you thought it was wonderful. And while wonderful can certainly mean all those things, wonderful here might be better understood as miraculous. This same word is typically used in describing God's mighty works. It's used to describe the miracles which God performs in Egypt, the dividing of the sea, the leading of his people by a pillar of cloud and fire, providing manna in the wilderness. These events, if we could see them today, would fill us with wonder and amazement. Wonderful in the Bible regularly means supernatural. And these mighty miracles are characterized as wonders, and the same shock and awe is attributed to this wonderful counselor. This implies divinity. This title is not given to any ordinary man. The role of a counselor is to provide wisdom. A counselor is one who is able to make wise plans. Kings would have these advisors and would often seek their counsel as issues would arise. This coming king will possess divine wisdom. He is a ruler whose wisdom is beyond mere human capabilities. This coming king would embody the fullness of all that is meant by his name, Wonderful Counselor. But where, where does that leave us? Why, why does that matter to us? Why do we need him? Our societal advancements, our growth in knowledge, the power of human ingenuity. We are wise. 
Today, I hope to show you that we are not as wise as we think and that we need guidance from the wonderful counselor because we have lost our way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that we would behold you for who you are in all your glory. I want to herald your greatness this morning. I pray that our hearts would cherish you and grow in love for you and that we would see our need for the wonderful counselor, that we would see the gift in the divine wisdom that we have been given in Christ. And because of this blessing, we would proclaim the greatness of our King to this world. I need your help today. I need your counsel, Lord. I pray that the message heard today would not be man's worldly wisdom, but that it would be the wonderful counselor, counsel, and power of God. In your precious name we pray. Amen. As we contemplate the wonderful counselor and our need for him, the passage we'll be looking at together is 1 Corinthians 1. 20, verses 22 through 30. This book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Paul had ministered in Corinth for a year and a half and had founded this church. And he's writing back to the people of God and encouraging them in their devotion to Christ. The Corinthian church was struggling to pull away from the surrounding culture. Many pagans who had come to be Christians were going back to their old ways of life. Their old sins, and these sins were present in the church. They were showing up all over the church. And there were many factions in the church dividing the people. Paul is writing to these immature Christians, encouraging them to not be tempted by the allure and false promises of the surrounding culture, but to find their identity and unity in Jesus. The text will serve as the three points of our sermon today. We will see man's weak wisdom in verses 22 through 25, God's mighty foolishness in verses 26 through 29, and our wonderful counselor in verse 30. First, let's consider why man's wisdom is so weak and lacking and why we need a wonderful counselor. Starting in verse 22, Paul is addressing two factions, two different worldviews that would have been prevalent in this day in and around the church, the Jews and the Greeks. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. The Jews rejected that Christ was the Messiah, and they held their own twisted version of the law. Paul says that they demanded signs and that the notion of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to them. The Jews desired signs. Even though Christ performed many miracles, it was never enough. They needed more heavenly affirmation that Christ was divine. We see some biblical examples of this. In Matthew twelve thirty-eight. The Pharisees questioned him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In Luke eleven sixteen, Jesus is casting out demons. Now, now just picture this. Jesus is speaking and in his power commanding demons to leave a man who was mute. And the demon leaves and the man he is able to speak for the first time. And the response of those around him was, 
But some of them said, he cast out demons by Belzebul, the prince of demons. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. This was not enough for them. Even in the display of his power, they accused him of working for Satan and want to test Jesus further. They were obsessed with miracles, yet no miracle was evidence enough for them. On top of this Jewish idea of a Messiah, in this coming king, they were anticipating a great earthly ruler. The idea that the expected Messiah would die on a cross was blasphemy to them. That is the death of a lowly criminal, not a king, not God come to earth. Death by crucifixion on a cross was a curse to them. They despised this notion. They looked down upon it. A crucified Messiah would have defied all Jewish expectations. The Greeks, instead of seeking a sign, they sought wisdom, and the cross was folly to them. The word Greek here is synonymous with the word Gentile, meaning anyone who is not Jewish. This would include the, the surrounding Greek culture. The Greeks prided themselves on the arts and sciences. They sought after highly sophisticated philosophers, and they were fascinated by rhetoric and oratory skill. Many times, the way in which something was cleverly said was held in higher regard than the content of the message. Paul's plain teaching of Christ crucified was foolishness to them. They laughed at the story of a crucified Savior. It didn't exude the pride and power that they were accustomed to. It was weak. There's this ancient writing known as the Alexaminos Graffito. And his ancient graffiti scratched on a plaster wall in Rome. And it depicts a man worshiping another man hung on a cross. And the man on the cross has the head of a donkey. This was a joke to them. This was how the Greeks of the day viewed a crucified Messiah. It was a folly. The message of Christ crucified may be a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles, but in verse 24, Paul addresses a third group. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Those that were Christians who had been called to a new, greater identity in Christ, this message of the Christ was something different entirely. It is the power and wisdom of God. This third group made up of both Jews and Greeks called out of the world to be his church, to be new creations in Christ, had an entirely different value placed upon this crucified Messiah. What others saw as weak and foolish, they saw as divine wisdom and power. How can this group, these groups see things so differently? We're given some explanation in verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. These are ironic expressions. True foolishness and weakness could never be ascribed to God. What the world dismisses as foolishness, 
which would be the foolishness of God, proves wiser than man's wisdom. And what the world discards as hopeless weakness, the weakness of God, proves stronger than man's strength. Professor D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this passage, uh, is very helpful. He says, this is much more radical than saying that God has more wisdom than human beings or that he is stronger than human beings, as if we are dealing with mere degrees of wisdom and power. No, we are dealing with polar opposites. Human wisdom and strength from God's perspective is rebellious folly and moral weakness. Our wisdom and God's wisdom are not even in the same category. They're polar opposites. With man's weak wisdom in mind, let's look at a few reasons why we are in need of a wonderful counselor. First is our self-centeredness. In both the Jews and Greeks seeking out signs and wisdom, there is a profound self-centeredness. This doesn't mean that we can't ask questions of God as we humbly grow in him, but this is not what they are doing. The postures of the Jews and Greek, their posture, instead of placing themselves under the God of the universe, they are placing themselves in judgment of God. If God does this for me, I will believe in him. If his teachings were more impressive or, or looked a certain way or fit into my philosophical framework, I would believe. God had become a sort of genie in a bottle that they wished would serve their own desires. And if God failed to meet their expectations, then he was discarded. Do we not see these same tendencies within us? We want to accept God on our terms. We declare what is right in our own eyes, and we mold God in our image. If God would just do this or prove this, I would believe. No, we wouldn't. And maybe it's not an outright denial of God, but do we follow in his ways? To believe in God, but to operate in self, this does not make sense. Humanity is naturally self-centered, and we need counsel outside of ourselves to save us from ourselves. Another reason we need a wonderful counselor, our wisdom is insufficient. The world is continually asking questions that it cannot sufficiently answer. As we see hate and corruption in our world, what is our answer? If people were just more educated, then they would know better, and we would be a better society. This certainly has merits, but it is not an ultimate answer as it does nothing to address our heart issue. As author C.S. Lewis said, education without values, as useful as it is, seems rather to make a more clever devil. A lot of modern day psychology seeks to alleviate distress, gives us coping mechanisms for getting through this life. Many counselors are taught to affirm their clients in whatever they may be going through. Please don't hear me saying that counseling cannot be useful or beneficial. It can be an excellent thing to pay attention to our mental health, and we should seek to have skilled counselors in our life. But as an ultimate answer, it is found lacking. I don't know 
about you, but sometimes the last thing I need is someone affirming my sinful thoughts. Working on college campuses, I have seen an all-time high need for counselors. Appointments are booked for months. I feel for many of those doing counseling who may be burdened themselves. Millions of dollars thrown at these support services and these resources are exhausted. Maybe we just need to love ourselves more, higher self-esteem. That's our problem. This concept makes some sense. But if we loved, if we, if, if we loved ourselves more that we could love others rightly, our problem is, is we can't love others because we don't love ourselves. Uh, one time there was a big campaign around self-love and shirts were given out that said, I love me. Kind of in the same style as I love New York, but I love me. This is the last thing we need. Our problem is not loving ourselves too little. We love ourselves too much. Even in the self-loathing person who is down on themselves, they are still obsessed with self. We are self-infatuated people. And we're being discipled by the world's counsel. There are ways that we're being, we're being taught uh, what the world values unless we intentionally take another path. And the best counsel we get in this world points us to God's word, points us to Christ, whose resources and wisdom are never exhausted. Let's look at one more reason we need a wonderful counselor. Lastly, any wisdom that we do have only comes from him. The fundamental difference between living for man's foolishness or living in the power and wisdom of God is that God called them. Look at verse 24. It is addressed to those who are called. He called them out of the world into his kingdom. There's nothing in and of themselves that sees wisdom and power where others see weakness and foolishness. It is because God called them. God did a work in their heart, made them new creations in Christ. And God does a supernatural work in order to save us. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, the sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The grace in our lives is God's work that he has ordained before the world was even in existence. He loved us. He saved us. He adopted us. He chose to open our eyes so that we could see that he is good. No saved sinner can ever boast that we have achieved salvation by our intellect and our efforts. Sometimes I just want to, th- I want to think that if we can just be logical or winsome enough that people will eventually see the gospel as good. In our flesh, in human pride, just like the Jews and Greeks in our passage, we will never see and be impressed by Christ. The disdain and contempt shows how Christianity would have never been sustained had its origins not been divine. It was rejected by the surrounding culture. Christians, 
May we never grow tired of the great work that God has done in our lives. Whether you were saved through the sharing of the gospel in a Christian home, or if God redeemed you while you were going hard after the world, it is a great miracle that God has transformed you. We should never lose sight of this. Any wisdom we have is only because God gave it to us. Anything good, anything wise, anything true is his. All truth is God's truth. Moving on from man's weak wisdom, let's now take a look at God's mighty foolishness. In verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul reminds the church of their humble origins and that Christ did not choose them because of their own worthiness. God chooses to save the lowly, God does not call to salvation many that the world would call great or elite. Doesn't it make sense to us in our wisdom to start with the most powerful or influential people? If I could just get Jeff Bezos on board, uh, or if we, could, if we owned the Google CEO, we could put scripture next to the search bar. That, that would be man-centered thinking, the way that we would start going after the most influential, the most powerful, the most rich, the most impressive of this world. But God, in many cases, has revealed himself to many which this world deems unimpressive. God loves an underdog story. And God delights in using the foolish for his glory. As we read our Bibles, we see this all throughout redemptive history. Moses reminded the Israelites that they were chosen, despite the fact that as a people, they were both few and rebellious. A shepherd boy defeating Goliath with a rock and a sling. A baby born not in a royal palace, but in a lowly manger to a carpenter. Women as witnesses of the empty tomb in a society that largely would disregard them as credible witnesses. And in the most powerful and foolish act in human history, God chooses to redeem his people by coming down to earth and brutally dying for them on a cross. They mocked him, putting on a crown of thorns, challenging his power, telling him to save himself. Maybe you are here today and you don't know Christ. You don't claim to be a Christian. You may think that there are many ways to God or that Bible is, the Bible isn't true. I want you to know that as you evaluate, you may see what we believe as dumb or foolish. And I just want to affirm you that you are not crazy to feel this way. If we look up just a few verses before our passage in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In all of this absurdity is wound up the wisdom and power of God. And we aim to share the message of the cross, even though we may be ridiculed or seen as outcasts. We serve a God who confounds the wisdom of man. 
His ways are not our ways. And I want to encourage you that everyone in this room didn't first see the message of the cross as the power of God. But God has opened up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ crucified, that Jesus would take on our sins and give us his righteousness, not because we are worthy, but because he showers us with mercy. And this is the message of the gospel, that we can be redeemed to God through this sacrifice, that God died for the sins of man. And and everyone that would turn from their sin and turn and repent and, and put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross would be attributed the righteousness of Christ. And so that God looks down and sees us, we are changed. We are new creations in Christ. And we don't stand trusting and hoping in our righteousness before God, but we stand on the righteousness of Christ. And he, he, Christ not only defeats sin and death in our lives, Christ also rose again from the grave, defeating, defeating death like no one else ever has or will. Christ makes us right with God. And this, I don't want this gospel message to remain folly to you. I don't want you to perish without Jesus. I encourage you to talk openly with other Christians in this room who share the same story of God miraculously working in our lives. It seems too good to be true. It seems foolish, but we have grown to see the power of God at work in our lives. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, in speaking of Jesus says, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Just as Christ was perceived as weak, yet lived in and by the power of God, we also in our weakness will live with him by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to beware of our nature to value the impressive things of this world. We all are probably familiar with the saying that one man's trash is another man's treasure. But often what God treasures, man trashes. And what man treasures, God trashes. We have a broken value system. When this world tells us to treat yourself We are called to die to self. When normal conventional wisdom would be to cling to all the money, safety, and security you have, Christ says to give sacrificially and generously. I can't tell you as someone who is preparing to preach today, sitting in despair behind a keyboard with a distracted mind, well aware of my limitations, what an encouragement it is to me that God would use my weak efforts to encourage his saints and to further his kingdom. Covenant Life hopes to plant a church in 2022 in Pinellas County. And this is a hard and awesome task. And in this process, it is so easy to look at the material things surrounding it and put our hopes in those things. Trusting in our resources, our ingenuity, putting our faith behind a leader, the right people, feeling secure in our financial backing. All of these things have value. They can be blessings and they're not to be overlooked. 
But God might choose to disregard the impressive things that we easily rely on and grow his church in weakness and ultimate reliance on him. And this may be easy to think of for the church plant, having a weakness and a reliance on him, but this is the same for covenant life. That we would be a people that, that are not mighty and impressive because of what we own and what we possess, but we would be mighty because of our weakness and our reliance on God, our dependency upon Christ. God, I pray that we would be a weak church at CLC, that people would, not, would, would see our reliance on God. And he might be asking us to step out of our security and our comfort, to take gospel risks, trusting in things we cannot see so that the gospel can flourish and those who have not yet heard this message of the cross will be saved in Tampa Bay, in St. Pete, in the nations. What glorious things might he do through his church? What, what church plants might come out of CLC, might come out of this church plant, not because of our power and wisdom, but because of his. As we grow in light of the cross, as we see what God values, it's amazing that we can even have pride in ourselves and in our accomplishments. We're like little kids at the bowling alley bragging about our ability to hit the pins when all the while our father has provided the gutter guards to securely guide the ball down the path. As professing Christians, we are weak of the world. We are the weak of the world that God has chosen for his glory. We are nobodies, but we know somebody. There is one great impressive person in the universe, and we get to live our life for him. You get to serve the good and just king. And we get to pour our lives out for the one who came for us to suffer for us. This is not some distant king that we worship. He fills us with his spirit. He died for us. He is with us. He is at work even now in our weakness. Praise God. And this brings us to our final point. Our wonderful counselor. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one boast, boast in the Lord. Because of Jesus' atoning work, we are in Christ. We saw earlier that found in Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And again, we see that he became to us wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All of the glorious things we have in Jesus. He is our righteousness before God. We do not have a righteousness of ourselves, but we get to claim his. He is our sanctification. He'll continue to grow us in godliness today and until we meet him face to face. And he is our redemption. This world may cast us out. We may not reach earthly expectations. We may look foolish, but we will be redeemed just as he was. His glories are inexhaustible. This morning, are you captivated by Christ? This Christmas season, I would just encourage you, don't stop until you are. 
meditate on his word, cry out to God and ask him for help. He knows you. He knows your struggles, not in an imperfect way where you have to convey or, or paint a picture to an earthly counselor. He has the full picture of your hurts, of your trauma, and he has provided the solution in himself. Even when we didn't understand, the Spirit intercedes for us. And whether you feel it or not, take God at his word. He will draw near to those who draw near to him. If our hearts are not captivated, it is not because he is lacking. We see in Colossians 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom he is the source. Just try to, try to comprehend that hidden in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There are so many distractions, so many things that we can give our times, time to. But when we give our hearts to lesser things, Roman 1 tells us that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And we should enjoy the good things of this world. But they should never be a replacement for the one we were meant to love. Even in the church, if we are not careful, we can spend more time in our different theological camps or be more concerned about potential threats than we can be captivated by the one who is full of all wisdom and power. This should blow our minds that in Christ are all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge in God. He is the one who has gifted the greatest thinkers of history with the ability to think. So easily, I'm distracted with lesser things. If Jesus isn't made a priority, I find myself going from house to house during the holidays, being lost in it all, not even soaking in Christ, which is the entire reason we celebrate. We need more Jesus. And here's the thing. He's given us his full supply. You could read all the books in the world and not have the wisdom found in Christ. Your affections, your loves, are they Christ? Or is Christianity just a ritual belief system that you ascribe to all without knowing and treasuring the wonderful counselor? When we tap into this, man, how it changes our Christmas traditions, how it changes the way we see success, how we see the church, and that its success is not a measure of its size or prominence, but it's found in its faithfulness. Be in love with Jesus. Devote yourself to him, and he will take care of everything. Wisdom isn't a concept or a principle. Wisdom is a person. And although we endure struggle in Christ, we have been gifted everything. Do not fall prey to the lies of this world. When we seek first the kingdom of God, it puts all other things into order. We become wiser in our actions, our time. It starts with him. Pursue him with all your heart. You will, be in ch you will be changed as you encounter his perfect character. Let me share with you something that has weighed on my heart this past month. It's the fact that you become like what you behold. You become like what you behold. 
as we behold material things, we become more materialistic. As we behold other humans, we become more humanistic. As we behold Christ, we become more godly. You become like what you behold. Our sense of wonder, have we lost it? The way we are moved by art, by the mysteries of the universe, these things should draw us to glory in him. We should identify with the psalmist in Psalm 139 who says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's describing something miraculous. This is what we have in Christ. My heart is moved to want to love Jesus more when I, when I read this quote by Pastor Jonathan Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. May we behold Christ this Christmas season and for all of our lives. May we boast in him this Christmas season. In him we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the wisdom and power of God. He is our wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are so good to us. We have so many things in you that we do not even realize. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season and beyond, that we would grasp them, that we would know who we are in relation to you, and that this would change and impact our lives, the reason we celebrate. God, thank you for being our wonderful counselor. In your name we pray, amen.